morning, our Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. If you have your Bible, you can open, turn it to Genesis 39. We are reading the whole chapter this morning. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ismailites who had taken taken him there. The law was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian's master. When his master saw that the law was with him, and that the law gave him, him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care, with Joseph in charge. He did not concern, concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And those who spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was, was inside. She caught him by his crook and said, come to bed with me. But he left his crook in her hand and ran out of the house. When he saw that he had left his crook in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his crook in beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his crook beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you bought us came to me and make to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his crook beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those helped in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. 
The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, j -Rod. Morning, everyone. Just let me get set up. Did the Ishmaelites come this week? <laughs> what? Last Sunday, we spoke about cue the Ishmaelites. Remember? You do not. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together again. We thank you for your commitment to us, your faithfulness towards us and your goodness to us in giving us your word and your spirit. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for them, uh, one another, and for ourselves this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes to your truth and help us to understand your purposes in our lives and for us, like Joseph, to align ourselves submissively to your will and your ways. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said... All this week, <clears throat> I've had the flu, man flu, I think they call it. So I haven't had a very good week. Yesterday was the first day that I was really up. And I think I spent all day yesterday looking down at iPads and books and writing. And now I think my neck is slightly out. <laughs> and I feel a little bit lightheaded. So I may have to sit down at some point. We'll see how we go. So if you see me fall over, it's not that I've died or anything. <clears throat> it's rather that my blood pressure is dropping or something. The Lord uses the hard things to grow us. That's true, isn't it? God uses the difficulties of our lives to grow us. And that's what I think this chapter of Genesis teaches us very much. Just a quick reminder, last week we saw Joseph in his boyhood his dad treated him as his favourite. He gave him a, I had to use the word dress because it starts with a D and they have to alliterate. Well, they don't. Was that special robe? And then he had those spectacular dreams. Then he was betrayed by his brothers. He was sent by his father to look after them, to find them. He was seen by the brothers and they threw him into a pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites, the Midianites. In Genesis 39, we see his bondage. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. He's tempted by Potiphar's wife. And then again, he is imprisoned and on false charges. In Acts chapter, he is age 17 when he goes down to Egypt, 17, 18. Genesis 37 tells us that. And if you flip over a couple of chapters, you'll see that Joseph was 30 years of age when he came to Pharaoh's palace. So we're talking about 12, 13 years that he is either in Potiphar's house or in prison. And you can, we, aren't, we don't have any more detail than that, but I reckon it's about nine or 10 years in Potiphar's house. It's a long time. And it's at least three years because for two of those years, he is forgotten by the chief cupbearer, which is next week's story. So this is going, this chapter covers for us about 10 years, something like that, almost 13 years. Here's a summary of Joseph. He is an honest, loyal, patient, godly servant and an innocent victim. And God uses the hard things, the hard circumstances in his life 
to grow him, prepare him to be an instrument in God's hands in order to achieve his purposes in the land of Egypt. Here is the outline of chapter 39. It's in these three paragraphs, verses uh, 1 to 6. He is trusted and he is successful. We'll have a look at that paragraph, draw some lessons from it. Verses 7 to 20, which is the key paragraph that dominates the chapter, he is tempted and he is falsely accused of sexual harassment or misbehaviour. And then finally, the chapter ends, again, he is tested and he is submissive to those who are in authority over him and God is with him and still blesses him. Let's jump in. Before we jump in, I should say this. Life for all of us, to different degrees, for some harder than others, but life is a series of hardships and dark times, is it not? All of us are either in a trial right now, a difficulty, a crisis, pressure point, stress levels are up, And if you're not in one of those, you may be just coming out of one of those. And if you're not coming out of one of those, you will, before very long, be heading into one of those. That's life. That's life in this world, in this fallen world. It's not the way that God wanted it or how he created it, but it's what has come about because of our rebellion and sin against him. Why does God put up with it? Why does he allow this? What's the purpose of it? Well, God allows it because he is far more interested in our character than he is in our comfort. He is like the divine photographer who is developing us into very beautiful pictures, if you like, and he develops best in the dim light of circumstances or in the gloomiest of situations. Remember last week that magnificent formula I gave you of how God works in our lives? Time and trials? and circumstances and coincidences. God is using all of that. The Lord uses hard things in us to grow us. So here is Joseph. We now revisit it. We've gone from 37 to 39 because 38 is a diversion talking about another brother, Judah, and the mischief and the nonsense that he got up to and how, by contrast, Joseph, almost the youngest, second youngest, is by far the most godly of all of the sons of Jacob. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, who is an Egyptian, uh, was one of Pharaoh's officials, circumstantial, coincidence, if you like. But he's the captain of the guard. This guy is the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. So he's trained military-wise, and he would often be travelling as Pharaoh travelled, so the captain of the guard would go and protect him, escort him. So Potiphar, a reasonably wealthy man, I guess, certainly in a a good position, he had the finances to buy Joseph. We're not told any of the details about that. He bought him and took him home. And the Lord was with Joseph. Even through the circumstances, thrown into the pit, sold to the Ishmaelites, now bought and sold, sold and bought by Potiphar, And God is with him, even in the hard times. And the interesting thing in this passage, in this paragraph, is God demonstrated his presence with Joseph through blessing him, prospering him. He was successful and he prospered. 
He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, how would Potiphar see that the Lord was with him? Well, it implies, and my guess is, Joseph told him about the Lord. Otherwise, there's no other way that Potiphar could possibly have known about the God of Israel. But Joseph must have been at some point, at appropriate points, testifying to the reality of God, the Lord. And when the master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph had the Midas touch. Whatever he touched, God touched. Whatever he did was blessed. Whatever he did just turned out exactly right. So Joseph found favour in Potiphar's eyes and he became his personal attendant. Not just a slave in the household now, now elevated to being Potiphar's personal attendant, looking after him personally. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. So Joseph continued to prove himself and God continued to bless him in this context and now Potiphar makes him the overseer entrusted to his care everything that he owned. From the time he put Joseph in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed him because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Every part of his life, every possession that he had, had the ring of blessing about of prosperity and success, Potiphar's in a sweet spot because of Joseph. It's not just because it's because of the Lord who is with Joseph. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. Didn't worry about a thing. Left all of the banking to him to do, keeping of the accounts, making of the, the schedules and organising things and planting the crops and organising all of the other servants. Potiphar didn't have to do it. Joseph was doing it. Trustworthy, honest, reliable. He didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So when he woke up in the morning, what's for breakfast? That's the only decision he had to make all day. As he went through the day, what's for dinner? And there's probably a cultural thing as well, that the Egyptians are very particular about their diet, as we read in a few chapters coming on, and they wouldn't associate with other races in the process. So it could be a, a ritual thing that he looked after his own food. Not sure. But it shows you the meticulous care that he placed or gave to, do, to Joseph. What a witness, what a testimony. What an implication for us. This is how we ought to be conducting ourselves in our situations in life. We ought to be that sort of an example wherever you work. There are a couple of false conclusions to avoid that I'll come to at the end of this message just to give you a heads up on one of them. Just because God is with us does not always mean that we will be prosperous. That does not follow, and that would be a false application of this passage. It is true in this passage for this individual, and it is true for some other individuals, but it's not universally true. But I think Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, give us a great application, a reminder Paul says to the Colossian Christians and to us, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
whatever you do, are you an accountant, a teacher, a domestic engineer? Work at it with all your heart. Be diligent, be responsible. You're working for the Lord, not for human masters. That certainly was Joseph's attitude, and it's commendable. And it's an appropriate application likewise for us. And things were going swimmingly for him, but things won't continue that way because in this fallen world, you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or you're heading for a trial. In the passage, the second section talks about him being tempted and accused. Now, we're told, interestingly, Joseph was well-built and handsome. It's a unique phrase. It's also used of his mum, Rachel, and that she was beautiful and shapely, Genesis 29, 17. She was good to look at, and so was her son. He is the Brad Pitt of the ancient world. Or if Brad Pitt doesn't do it for you, Tom Cruise. Ryan Reynolds? Ryan Gosling? Jason Statham? I think number one would have to be Sean Connery, wouldn't it? He's the Sean Connery of the ancient world. Probably some of you are thinking much older Rock Hudson or somebody else, but us young people, we don't know who they were. <laughs> Being well-built and handsome is a difficulty that some of us have had to carry all of our lives. The devil took notice of Joseph. He always does. When God is using somebody, the devil takes note. And here is Joseph, he's young, he's single, and he's good looking. And he is successful. It's a fatal combination, isn't it? He's already overcome the temptation and the issues about being bitter towards his brother. He isn't. If you took a CAT scan of Joseph's soul and you would not find any bitterness, he'd forgiven them. He's a remarkable young man. He overcame being discouraged by being a slave and was just simply trusting God. But the devil wasn't done with him yet. And the devil was studying Joseph, so he studies us just like he studied Jesus. We do not live in a spiritual neutral environment in this world. Satan is active and he takes many ways of attacking or undermining or distracting. And he can assume many different disguises and he's going to turn up here. Joseph is in good shape and he is good looking. And if he's wearing, I imagine, his Egyptian uniform, he's the chief slave, he's head of the house. I imagine him with a sleeveless white tunic that was down to his waist with no buttons that would be open. His biceps and his abs would be showing. Let me show you. Um, and he was successful the temptation for Joseph could have been aren't I good I by my own abilities am doing this that's not his perspective but that would be the temptation for him and for us and God says way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when Moses is using Moses to lead the people into the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, through Moses, God speaks to his people 
and says to them, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out, who saved you, led you through the wilderness to test what was in your heart. Don't say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant with you, which he saw to your ancestors. Don't look to yourself when God is blessing you. Look up. That was the mistake Moses made, remember? He grew up in the palace of Egypt. He grew up in the land of plenty and abundance. He was used to the good life. And at the age of 40, he felt God was calling him to go and deliver his people Israel. And he went out and he looked this way and he looked that way, but he didn't look that way. He made sure nobody was watching and then he enacted what he wanted to do. And it wasn't what God wanted him to do at all. So for us, always maintain the upward look just like Joseph does in this part of the story. So we come to Potiphar's wife. Imagine years are passing. Joseph's been in the house, he's promoted. He's a um, Potiphar's personal assistant. He's now promoted to be head over all of the slaves and things are going swimmingly. And I would imagine Potiphar being away a fair bit. He had the long days when he was at home, but his job would also take him away as Pharaoh travelled around. And I would imagine, and I am imagining, that she had her dinner parties with the wives of other nobles in the upper ranks of Egyptian society. And perhaps it was the other wives who noticed Joseph first. He was often spoken about over lunches and she was congratulated on being so blessed, so lucky to have such a servant as Joseph. And then after a while, she starts to notice him. Initially, she didn't. He was a slave. She was a free person. She's the wife. She's the wife of the master. So she's in a privileged position. But after a while, her attention is on Joseph. She took notice of him. She longingly looked at him. She started seeing him in another light. And she tempts him. And because she's the head lady of the house, she's used to speaking directly. And she's also used to being obeyed. So she rather directly and bluntly, suddenly, out of the blue, well, was it out of the blue? May have been. Or, for most of us, temptations tend to build. So I imagine this one was building too. She put herself in certain positions where she would be noticed by Joseph as he was doing his duties around the house. That she would be placing him in various compromises and so on. Finally, that wasn't getting anywhere, and so she comes straight out and verbally says, go to bed with me. I want to sleep with you. It's sudden. It was sustained. He says no, of course. And though she spoke day after day, it was sudden, it was sustained. And eventually it's going to be in secret because they're going to be alone in the house. And he continued to refuse her. But also notice verse 10, he not only refused to go to bed with her, he started putting in place, started avoiding her. He didn't even want to be with her because she was bad news. She was 
a temptation that he wanted to avoid. What does he say? How did he overcome his temptation? Well, notice very carefully what he did. He understood his position, who he was. He understood what the master had given him and he didn't want to blow that. He understood who she was. And most of all, he understood that God was watching. With me in charge, my master doesn't concern himself with anything. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. How can I abuse that trust? My master has worth nothing from me except you. Remember who you are? You're his wife. You took vows. You made a promise that you would be loyal and faithful to him. He's a remarkable young man. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I know who I am and I know my position. I remind you of who you are. You're his wife. Don't do a terrible thing. And don't forget God is watching. He was very conscious of God in his life. And this sin, this is before the Ten Commandments. This is before it was a law. But in ancient Israel, if you committed adultery, then it was the death penalty. We have that through other records. And certainly Joseph is coming from that perspective. How did he overcome temptation? By those steps that I just outlined for you. He reminded himself that God was watching. He reminded himself of his position in life and the trust that had been entrusted to him, given to him. And he reminded her, as well as himself, of what she was, who she was, and her responsibilities. One day, she doesn't let up. It was sudden, it was relentless, now it's in secret. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the other household servants were there. Where are they? Had she gotten rid of them? Was it just a coincidence that he happened to go into the house unaware that she was in the house alone? She caught him. She's not mucking around anymore. She comes straight up to him and she grabs him by that lovely white coat opening, showing his biceps and his abs. Took him by the coat. Come to bed with me now. She threw herself at him. He did a twist turn and took the coat off type thing. And she's now holding his coat. And he ran out of the house. Sometimes with temptation, that's what we have to do. Run. Don't try to stay and fight. Run. Certainly that's what the New Testament teach us. Watch this. When she saw that he had left her coat in his hand, where's the coat? In her hand. And he had run out of the house. She let out a frustrated scream. She screamed all right. She's going to tell a lie in a moment about the scream that she gave. I reckon she was sexually frustrated. She can't have her own way and she hollers. Undoubtedly other servants would have heard her screaming and they probably came running. She called her household servants, look, she said, and then she plays the race card. This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us, to laugh at us, to mock us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. Oh yeah, we heard the scream. When he heard me scream for help, he left his coat beside me and ran out of the house. She's got the order completely wrong. It's not when he heard me scream, he left his coat. He left his coat and then she screamed after and he ran. What did she do? She took the coat, she kept it beside her until her husband came home. Then she told him, and I like the translation, this story, because it is a story. Again, the race card. The Hebrew slave you brought us. She's blaming him. Just like Adam in the garden. Lord, the woman you gave to be with me, 
She made, took the apple and or whatever was the fruit and I ate. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to, it says, make sport of me, to play with me, to have his way with me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his coat right here beside me and ran out of the house. It's a lion, it's a fabricated and the order is all wrong. When the master heard this story, his wife told him, this is how your slave treated me. What's his response? Well, if any good husband, he burned with anger. Question, who's he angry at? You think initially, Joseph. Read on. Joseph master took him and put him where? In prison. In prison. The death penalty was the appropriate response. Why did Potiphar put Joseph in prison? And it's not just any prison. It's where the king's prisoners were confined. Guess who is in charge of the king's prisoners? Potiphar. You go into chapter 40... We'll come to it in a moment. If you go into chapter 40, verses 2 to 4 and 7, it talks about very clearly that this is the prison, that it was the captain of the guards' prison. He took Joseph and put him in the jail where he could still have contact with him and still oversee him. Who was Potiphar angry at? I think he's angry at his wife. He's furious with her. He knows her character. And what has Joseph done for Potiphar? Brought nothing but blessing. And now what's he got to do? Give Joseph up. For the sake of saving his face and his marriage and I guess and everything else. Remember the story of um, Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell? You seen that movie? 1924 Olympics in Paris. They're in Paris again next year, I think. 2024. Eric Liddell goes to Paris. Um... A champion, 100-yard dash sprinter. Um, when he gets there, unfortunately, he finds out that the race, his race, is on a Sunday. And his conviction and his beliefs meant that he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't run on a Sunday. It was the Lord's Day. And so he was pressured by authorities to reconsider, but he refused. He stuck to his principles. And eventually he gets, spoke, gets talked into running the 400-yard dash, the 400-yard sprint. And that's all the 400 yard is. It's a long sprint. It was not his event and he hadn't trained for it. And so he lines up for it on the day, uh, not a Sunday. He lines up for this event and somebody put a scrap of piece of paper in his hand and on the piece of paper he read it, which says, those who honour the Lord, or those who honour God, God will honour. And he kept that scrap of paper in his hand. The gun went off and the race was underway and he ran around that track four times holding that piece of paper and he was triumphant. He won. Incredible. It's a great movie. And then he's lifted in triumph on the shoulder high and carried off. He was a man who was true to his conviction and he was gloriously vindicated. That's what always happens, isn't it? Remember Joseph? He was true to his convictions. He stood his ground. What happened to him? He's carted off to prison. An innocent victim. He resisted all of her temptations and yet she won. She lied. And here is Joseph in prison. I think Potiphar was angry with his wife because he knew her character, as I said, but he primarily he lost the influence of Joseph in his 
personal possessions. And because he's in charge of the prison, I think he instructed the prison warden, do something with Joseph. And the prison warder does exactly what Potiphar did. While Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all of those in the prison. And he made him responsible for all that was done there. And guess what happens? The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, trusted him, because the Lord was with him and gave him success in whatever he did to repeat. What's going on in Joseph's life? He's gone from the land of Canaan where he was free, thrown into a pit and taken down to be sold as a slave with an influence but limitation. Now he's in a prison cell with limitations. What are the applications for us? What does all of this mean for us? Well, I, I should say something in terms of application about temptation. Temptation is not a sin. Temptation offers us a choice. Will we do what God wants or will we do what the devil wants? What? Sometimes what we want. Because temptation comes into that level of our flesh, of level of our desires. Temptations begin with a thought and blind us often to the consequences. We become obsessed with it. I wanted to give you this illustration to help you clarify the process for us, because it is a process. Very rarely do we get tempted and we suddenly jump the whole distance. It sort of builds. It begins in your mind. That's why we are to be renewed in our minds. But anyway, temptations begin with a thought. I don't know what your weakness is. Is it ice cream? Is it chocolate? Or is it tin tams? Or is it all three? Doesn't matter. I'm going to use chocolate. I can resist chocolate. It's just that I choose not to. <clears throat> Begins with a thought. I think I'd like a piece of chocolate. I know I shouldn't. But seeing I'm out for a drive, I won't go near the store. If I go near the store, I won't go in. If I do go in... I won't go down the aisle with the chocolates on sale. If I do go down the aisle with the chocolates on sale, then I'll just look at them, I won't pick one up. If I pick it up, I won't buy it. If I buy it, I won't open it. If I open it, I won't taste it. I just smell it. If I taste it, I won't eat it. Munch, 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 it's all gone. Another thought, I feel like some more chocolate. I won't go near the store. If I go near the store, I won't. It's a process, you see, where we increasingly move the hurdles. You think about your temptations and it'll be a similar sort of process. What's the cure? Be filled with the, with the Holy Spirit. Walk towards God. Look up. Not just look left, look right. Is anybody watching? Look up. Somebody is watching. And he wants to strengthen us and empower us to make choices. Temptation's like a magnet. And it, it's got a pull. And if you entertain the thoughts, it, the pull increases. What you need to do is redirect the pull. Instead of towards the temptation, redirect it towards God or towards righteousness. It's a choice that we need to exercise. That's certainly what Joseph did. And when he ended up in prison... I guess he started thinking, I guess God wants me to have a prison ministry. Two false occupations, as I said way before. Here's the first one to remind you. When God is with us, we will be successful and prosperous in all that we do. That was true for Joseph. 
It's also true for Abraham, for Job and for others and for some incredibly wealthy people in the world today. But God was with Jesus and he wasn't prosperous. God was with Paul and all the apostles and they were not prosperous. You look throughout Bible history and church history, some are given much. Most of us are given enough. So it would be a false conclusion because God was with Joseph, that's why he was successful and prosperous. Don't draw that false conclusion as undoubtedly some Bible teachers would today. Number two, secondly, it's a false conclusion or application that if I obey God, if I do all of the right things, if I work hard and I'm loyal, then bad things won't happen to me. That's a false conclusion. It's a false thought. Joseph did everything right. He obeyed God. But he was rejected. He was enslaved. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. And he was forgotten about for two years. Why did God allow that? Because God's more interested in our character than he is in our comfort. And he is working his purposes out. Well, what's a true conclusion then from this story? That when God is with us, then others will observe it and know it. When God is in our lives, we will be different. We won't necessarily be better than others, but we'll be better than ourselves. With God in us, others will observe it and they'll note it. Potiphar saw God in Joseph. The warden experienced God being with Joseph. What about others and our lives? Our boss, our colleagues, our family. How real is God to us, to me? How real is God in me? That is an appropriate conclusion. It's also fair to observe another true conclusion. Throughout Genesis 39, in fact, the Joseph story, God is continually giving and taking away, just like he did with Job. He had the cloak, many colours or long-sleeved, was taken away. He was in Potiphar's household where he was successful in all that he did, was taken away and he's in prison. And he's left there, plateaued for two years. God was at work, waiting the right time. God can work out his purposes by blessing us with success or by removing them and restricting us. It's always the upward look. This chapter reminds us. In fact, all through the story of Joseph, God is not mentioned, except in 39, Genesis chapter 39, where God is mentioned five or six times. But every other part of the story we're going to come to in Genesis, God won't be mentioned. But it's interesting that God is obviously behind the scenes, working his purposes out. And that's what he's doing in your life. God is in control and God is at work. And for Joseph, we know by chapter 41, his focus is going to be, it's not me, it's God. Because Pharaoh will say to him, I understand you can interpret dreams. It's not me. It's God. Let 
that be our testimony to this week. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are at work in our world. You work in our lives. Nothing catches you by surprise. And that you and your sovereignty and power take the bad things, the hard things, and use them, even the good things, and use them to achieve your purposes and to bring yourself glory. Lord, do that in us and help us to see that very clearly. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.